Welcome to the Public Morality. October 24th commemorated the 50th anniversary of the passing of Jack Roosevelt Robinson. Jackie, as he's often remembered, was one of the most important Americans in the 20th century. Not only did he integrate Major League Baseball, which in my view makes him, along with Babe Ruth, the sport's two most important individuals, but in days before and days after his baseball career, Robinson showed himself to be much more than a great athlete. He was a fighter, a black freedom fighter. That is in part the title of the new book authored by Professor Johuru Williams and Michael Long, Call Him Jack, the story of Jackie Robinson, black freedom fighter. Williams is a professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, the chief historian formerly of the Jackie Robinson Foundation. Long is the author and editor of several books on Robinson and the civil rights history. Professors Williams and Long, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Byron. It's great to be back. Always good to have you back, sir. Professor Williams, I'll start with you. I want to begin this conversation discussing the intentionality of the title. Call him Jack. What's behind that? You know, I think two things. First is just um, a recognition on our part that a lot of people freeze Jackie Robinson within the mythology of the story of Jackie Robinson. The integration of baseball in 1947, the agreement that he makes with Jack, uh, with Branch Rickey, um, and this persona that literally is not a representation of the man. So what we wanted to do is to recapture a historical Jack, the man behind the mythology, the man behind the nickname, um, so to speak. People think they know Jackie Robinson, and for them, that is reduced to um, a guy who didn't fight back, a guy who turned the other cheek. In fact, you saw this to a certain extent uh, this year in an incident that took place um, with the Chicago White Sox player uh, who got an altercation with a, a player in the New York Yankees, and he claimed that the Yankee player had used a slur against him, and the slur was Jackie. When Michael and I heard that, even though the book was well on its way to publication, we thought this is exactly why this book is necessary. People just have a perception of Jackie Robinson as being someone who is passive. And, you know, we reclaim a historical Jack and show that he was a freedom fighter his whole life. Secondly, this is how Jack um, described himself. So one of the things that we talk about in the book, one of the things that we document, I was at the Jackie Robinson Foundation for, for many years and worked with Rachel Robinson. Um, and she always called him Jack or always refers to him as Jack, is that Jack, that's how Jack referred to himself. And we thought it was important, particularly um, in this historical moment, for young people to be exposed to Jack Roosevelt Robinson, as opposed to the mythology of Jackie Robinson, because it speaks um, so powerfully to so many of the important issues that, that young people, that all of us are dealing with today, from um, American democracy and what it means to be an inheritor of birthright citizenship, um, all the way down to what it means to be a, a contributing member of participatory democracy, both of which were very important to Jack. Professor Long, anything to add? I think I'd follow up on that with uh, just one obvious comment, and is that his mother named him Jack Roosevelt Robinson. He had an older brother named Mac. He had an older brother named Frank. He had an older brother named Edgar. So Jack was very deliberate on her part. Uh, and he embraced that name fully when he was growing up. He signed his yearbooks as Jack Robinson when he was in um, middle school. 
when he was at Pasadena Junior College, he signed the yearbook as Jack Robinson. He signed baseball as Byron as Jack Robinson up until 1946. The mythology of Jackie Robinson kicked in in 1947, and that's when he started signing baseballs as Jackie. So, uh, Professor Long, I'll stay with you. Would it be fair in your estimation to offer that the cornerstones of what you all talk about in the books, Robinson's inner strength that began in, in, in Cairo, Georgia, through Pasadena to UCLA, the military, baseball, post-baseball, were those, uh, were the cornerstones forged one by his mother, Mally, and second by his wife, Rachel? Yes. I believe that Robinson uh, had incredible racial pride. And he learned that that was instilled in him by Mally Robinson. I know that you and I share uh, an interest in Black religion. And Mally taught Jack this really interesting story about Adam and Eve. She taught him, though, that Adam and Eve were originally Black. And that when God caught them eating the apple of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they were scared white. Originally, though, they were Black. And what Mountley was doing by teaching Jack that lesson about Adam and Eve, that really interesting angle on Adam and Eve, was to tell him that the color of his skin was a mark of divine dignity. And Robinson really took that lesson to heart. And for a long time, actually for the rest of his life, he saw his the color of his skin as a mark of divine dignity, as part of God's original design for humanity. And I really believe that that's what fueled his decision to fight for freedom the rest of his life. He was proud of the color of his skin. In fact, that's one of the reasons uh, that Rachel was attracted to him at UCLA. Uh, she noticed that Jack was wearing bright white starch shirts, and he wore that to accentuate the darkness of his skin. And she really was attracted to uh, his racial pride. Uh, she also, you're right, was a cornerstone in Jack's life. And I'll let Dr. Williams pick it up from here. Uh, I would just say that I, I think that Rachel also was deeply attracted to Jack because of his pride in his race. And she saw that. Um, in fact, we talk about in the book, Jack wore these bright white shirts to accentuate his dark color, his dark skin color. And Rachel found that attractive. But part of what she was also attracted to is the fact that here was somebody who, um, in, in the very dignified way in which he carried himself, was also proud to be Black. We often dichotomize um, civil rights and Black power when we talk about um, the 1950s and 1960s civil rights movements. And a cornerstone of the Black power movement was Black pride and pride in one's racial heritage. Um, Jack made it may have been militant with regard to civil rights and um, certainly, you know, not in the same trajectory of some of the people that we associate with Black power, like a Malcolm X or um, the Black Panthers. But the reality is that Jack exhibited that same sense of racial pride that we would associate with Black power. I'll, I'll say with you, uh, Professor Williams, um, to sort of put, put this in context um, where, where you all sort of begin your text, Robinson's born in 1919, the year that would later be known as Red Summer, 
where you had terrorism by vigilante whites against blacks, not just in the South, but across the country. Um, you all begin by talking about the freedom train. Uh, talk about its role in that time period in forging uh, who Robinson would become. Well, it's really important because he's born in a moment of transition and transformation in the nation as a whole. And we can view that at least through the lens of African-American history in these waves of the great migration. As you see people like Maley Robinson, you know, leaving the South because they're tired of the oppressive economic system. They're tired of the social inequality. They're, they're tired of the political inequality that really um, defines the existence of Black Americans in those spaces. When they move North um, to places like Chicago and New York, when they move West to places like Pasadena, um, what they do ultimately in those spaces is exactly what we see the Robinsons do. They begin to assert first-class citizenship. They refuse to be denied access to the accoutrements of citizenship that belong to all other Americans. And you see that in Robinson's life with his mother purchasing a home, fending off um, her white neighbors who try to force them out of that home, uh, trying to ensure um, the same sense of dignity and the same opportunity for her children and for herself that their neighbors would have had um, in California. So that's an important part of that. In terms of the violence, um, and certainly this is uh, significant in terms of Jack's own life, um, we think about the Red Summer as being one of these push factors. Um, and this is something that when you think about some of the encounters that Robinson had, particularly when he um, is in the military, but certainly after he integrates baseball, uh, this is a very dangerous enterprise that he had embarked on. Um, there's a story that we tell in the book about Rachel being in tears after one of his first games, where Jack has to remain in the park until after midnight for fear that a mob um, is going to come and to do physical harm to him. So, you know, I think there's a way in which in the sanitization of the Jackie Robinson story, as much as I love the Brian, um, the, the, the biopic of 42, um, which I thought did a good job, but but not but not a perfect job of, of demonstrating just how dangerous this enterprise was. This wasn't just a feature of 1947. This was what black uh, black life was like in America, this ever-present fear of violence and harm that might come from traversing the social order or you know, violating some unwritten rule. And Jack Robinson lived in the reality of that and yet pushed back at it every chance he got. And that's what we document in the book. Professor Long, I'm gonna switch gears and have you say more, if you would, um, about Robinson's time um, post-Georgia, moving to Pasadena, um, because Pasadena, though not Cairo, Georgia, was not exactly uh, Shangri-La. So what was that like for Robinson and his siblings? So when Melly Robinson moved the family to Pasadena, uh, she took what they were, what they called the freedom train. And when she did that, she taught Jack that freedom was something to be grasped. It wasn't just this gift that suddenly appeared. It was something that you had to work hard for, that you had to struggle for. Freedom came through struggle. Uh, but when she took that freedom train, you know, in some ways they thought they were going to the promised land. Well, Pasadena did not turn out to be the promised land by any stretch of the imagination. So eventually, as Hubert noticed, uh, they moved to an all-white block. 
And there are members on the block who just don't want them there. And they burn a cross on the Robinson's front lawn, believe it or not, uh, to demonstrate that, uh, well, to demonstrate white supremacy on that block, right? And there's a kid across the street who doesn't like Jack. And one day when Jack is just eight years old, he's out sweeping the street and and she comes out and she yells the N-word at him and and he calls her a cracker back. And and then her father comes out and throws a stone at Jack and throw and Jack hurls a fastball back. And there's this huge stone fight, but it gives you some sort of glimpse that this was not the promised land for the Robinsons. In Pasadena, you're right, it was not Cairo, Georgia, but it was thoroughly segregated. So Jack and his friends couldn't go to the public swimming pool and swim just any time they wanted. They had to wait for the one day a week when they were allowed to go, and that was called International Day, uh, as if to suggest that the kids weren't part of the social fabric of the local community, that they came from another country. Uh, and then after they were done swimming that day, you know, the local authorities drained the pool and scrubbed the walls and refilled it as if to suggest that Jack and his friends of color had infectious diseases that the white kids would catch just by swimming in the same water. And so Jack faced this kind of stuff. And then he, when he went downtown, there were segregated restaurants. The local theater was segregated. When he went to the library, he couldn't access a library card to check books out. Uh, and then there was the police violence directed at him and his friends as well. When they couldn't go swimming, they would go to the local reservoir and the uh, police show up and they would draw their guns and haul Jack and his friends uh, to jail, believe it or not. Uh, some of the members of the local police department in Pasadena, Byron, were former members of the Ku Klux Klan. So yeah, Jack faced uh, racism. He, placed, he faced racial violence when he was growing up in Pasadena. Those were tough days and, and Pasadena left a really nasty taste in Jack's mouth. Professor Williams, um, you can expand on that, but, I, but I'd, I'd also like to ask you, is, is Robinson enrolled in uh, Pasadena, Pasadena City College, um, as did his older brother, Mac, who was also a great athlete in his own right, could you offer a brief synopsis of uh, synopsis of Mac Robinson also? I actually want to pick up on something that Michael shared, and then I'm, I'm going to toss that back to Michael um, to talk about Mac a little bit. But, I, you know, in sharing the story about the pool, one of the things that struck uh, Michael and I in writing this book is Jack was such a gifted and talented athlete. Can you imagine if uh, as a child he had, had access to the swimming pool on a regular basis? We think about the long-term impacts of segregation, uh, and you talk about the the opportunities like existing within a uh, environment where you you take advantage of all the opportunities that are presented to you, but you're still working within a context where some things are restricted by virtue of the system and, and the way that the system is designed um, to deny. Um, Jack could have been Michael Phelps of his day had he had access to that, to the to the pool. So we we can think about that. Jack wasn't a great student. Um, did the denial of the library card in some sense contribute to that? I mean, it's it's these aspects of Robinson's life that help us to make a larger point about why we think this book is so pertinent today um, and why it's so important. Uh, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, the Reverend Al Sharpton came to Minneapolis and delivered a, a eulogy for Floyd in which he said, that George Floyd's story is a story of Black folks in America. Well, Jack Robinson's story is a story of Black people in America, both the travail 
and triumph of the African-American experience. The, the pushing back against segregation, you know, the story of his brother Mac winning a gold medal, excuse me, winning a, a medal at the Olympics, um, almost winning the gold medal, and then coming home and having to work as a street sweeper um, in Pasadena because of the limited um, economic opportunities for people of color. Um, you see that in the Robinsons later in, in his life where Jack can't even purchase a home in Stanford, Connecticut without um, the uh, one of his friends running interference to be able to purchase that home. And even then, his you know, he can't golf at the segregated uh, golf club in Stanford because he's denied access to it. And he's Jack Roosevelt Robinson at that point. Um, so, you know, I, I we really wanted young people to understand that there is some continuity in our contemporary moment for looking back and not coming to the conclusion that nothing's changed. That would be the wrong thing to take away from this. It would be the argument that freedom is a constant struggle. And I know, um, Byron, you talk a lot about these kind of three foundational documents that define the landscape of what we would define as our civil theology, the Emancipation Proclamation, the Declaration of Independence, and the U.S. Constitution. I think Jack Robinson's life is a testament to how those documents, in many ways, contribute to the travail and triumph of the African-American experience. Professor Long, would it be fair, uh, we're going to move Robinson to UCLA now, would it be fair to offer that baseball was not his best sport? <laughs> uh, yes, that would be very fair. Robinson played baseball for one season at UCLA, and I believe his batting average uh, was less than 0 0.100. So it was not his best uh, sport at UCLA. Jack uh, lettered in football, basketball, track and field, and baseball. He also, believe it or not, won a state championship in tennis, and he excelled at ping pong. When he was younger, he was good at marbles. The guy had athletic prowess. At UCLA, he wasn't a star student. There's no doubt about that. And Rachel was the star student of the couple. The two met, they got together at UCLA. And I really think that meeting Rachel and forming a relationship with her was probably the highlight of his time at UCLA. Uh, there's really no doubt about it. But baseball, yes, baseball was not his best sport at UCLA. Still, he letters in it. He's excellent in the field. He has a lousy uh, season in terms of batting. But, you know, Robinson, Robinson was probably one of the best athletes in the United States at that point. Clearly, he's probably the best all-around athlete in the United States at that point. I can't think of anybody at that point in history who was such an all-around athlete as Robinson was. Now, earlier, of course, we had Jim Thorpe, right? But I think Robinson is in that pantheon of awesome athletes. And the, the, the irony here, um, and it's sort of something that you alluded to earlier, Professor Williams, about um, Jack's experience and time and, and uh, some of his challenges in Pasadena, or Professor Long, I think. But anyway, I'll, I'll direct this to you, Professor Williams. Even at UCLA, this, this star athlete that Professor Long just talked about, a sports writer 
uh, writes about Robinson, said that he ran with the football like it was a watermelon and a guy who owned a shotgun was, was after him. I mean, so this stuff never, ever leaves. No matter how great he is on, on, on the athletic field, this, this sort of pervasive sort of typecasting racism doesn't leave Robinson. Absolutely not. And and that's why it's all the more significant when you see Jack pushing back against that, that he's doing so um, with this kind of sense of purpose, this intentionality um, that we think is impressive and, and also points to um, the subtitle of the book, you know, Jackie Robinson, the story of a, a black freedom fighter, which he was. He was always kind of pushing back against that. When you talk about that sports writer, ironically, when people think about Robinson's professional career, a lot of emphasis is placed on the abuse that he took for, from fans. Um, we talk about this in the book. There's nothing that anyone was saying to Robinson in the prose that he hadn't already heard, um, you know, a thousand times over at UCLA or in, in Pasadena or in other contexts, because that was the nature of that moment. And you can see that even in the sports writers who think they're being flattering to Jack by describing him in ways that were racially demeaning. Um, and today, we know in our contemporary context, we look at something like that and we go, you know, wow. Um, imagine Robinson being in a position today with no social media, no ability to kind of to, to, to push back against that. The only place that he could speak was on the field. And he did that in his superior performances um, on the field of play. But then he also does it, um, and I know we're getting there, in the military uh, when he is subjected to Jim Crow treatment. Well, Professor Williams, staying with you, if we could talk about the some of what led to Robinson being court-martialed in the in the military. Well, Jackson, the military, nineteen forty-four, he's stationed in Texas, and he is coming back from rehab, uh, rehabbing his uh, uh, injury that he had, a sports injury, and he is on a bus, uh, which is on the Army barracks at that time. And the driver is offended because he sees Lieutenant Robinson speaking to a light-complected woman whom he assumes is a white woman. The driver stops the bus and demands that Lieutenant Robinson remove himself to the um, colored section of the bus. Well, Jack had read, um, there, there were orders that came out from Washington that said there was to be no segregation on U.S. Army uh, posts. Um, and because Robinson had read that, he refuses to give up his seat. The driver is incensed. A, a white woman gets involved and demands that the police be called. And when the police come, they arrest Jack um, because they claim that not only did he dis disobey the bus driver, but he he used profanity toward them. Well, when it comes to court martial, um, Jack recant recites, you know, uh, recounts that he had read these army orders, and so he was simply following orders by not refusing a seat. But more importantly, he's asked specifically why he pushes back at being called the N-word because the driver um, you know, is, is very hostile toward him and people are throwing around that word. And Jack's response is that you know, he was taught by his, his mother and grandmother that that word was referred to an uncouth person. I'm um, in a low person. He tells the tribunal, I don't consider myself to be low or uncouth. I do not consider myself that word. Well, fortunately, Jack prevails. The um, tribunal looks at the, the case and says that Lieutenant Robinson was right. And the reason that's so important is that that is, uh, you know, if, if that case doesn't go in Robinson's direction, he's not integrating the Dodgers with Branch Rickey in 1947. There would have been no way for Branch Rickey or any team 
to have brought Robinson on being perceived as a felon for pushing back uh, for his rights in a way that he did on that Texas bus in 1944. That's a perfect segue where I'd like to go to, to, to talk about uh, baseball. Uh, Professor Long, among the many fascinating things about Robinson, uh, at the time that he was signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers, he, as we sort of alluded about UCLA, I think it certainly could hold true in the Negro Leagues that he wasn't the, the best player in the Negro Leagues. And his temperament was not one to turn the other cheek. Not at least it's not his natural temperament. But he nevertheless is the perfect person to take on this Herculean experiment. Could you talk about that irony and, and how he sort of navigated those things? Sure. First, I wanted to mention that I'm from Pennsylvania, and since uh, you said you were going to talk about baseball, I thought you wanted to talk about the Philadelphia Phillies uh, heading into the World Series yet again. But let's I'm go back to Robinson. I'm a San Francisco Giants fan, so that's a closed subject as far as I'm concerned. Go ahead. <laughs> let's, get, let's get back to Robinson. You know, Robinson, you're right. He's not naturally nonviolent. He's not naturally uh pacifistic in any way in fact one of his teammates from the negro leagues said he had a temper like a rattlesnake uh, he'd bite you before you knew it uh so it was really difficult for him in 1947 uh this is the year that he's turning the other cheek as he promised branch ricky the general manager of the brooklyn dodgers when they first met and when they uh, signed Robinson as well, he promised to turn the other cheek for the sake of integrating Major League Baseball. It was really difficult. Uh, and, and Ricky knew that Robinson had a fiery temperament. So it's always interesting to me that Ricky put Robinson into that position anyway. I think he understood too that Robinson had the type of character uh, that saw the bigger picture uh, that saw beyond that immediate moment. But I'll tell you what, I, and I do want to emphasize this, Byron, that immediate moment was really uh, troublesome for Robinson. Let's go to the Phillies in 1947. You know, they're playing, they're squaring off the Brooklyn Dodgers and the manager, Ben Chapman, is in the dugout and he's curling the N-word at Robinson, who's in the batter's box. And a couple other Phillies are doing the same thing and saying, why don't you go back to the uh, cotton farm and go back to the bushes? And Robinson in that moment says that he feels like throwing down his baseball bat, marching over to that dugout and using what he calls his despised black fist to smash the teeth of those white sons of you-know-whats. That's who Robinson was in his core. And so in 1947, when he's turning the other cheek and he's looking polite and he's looking peaceful deep inside, he is churning. Uh, and it was difficult for him. And then when he would go home at nighttime, his, uh, Rachel, his widow, says he would get on his knees and pray next to the bed and pray to God for strength and courage to continue on. Those were tough days for Jack Roosevelt Robinson. So Professor Williams, so we, we move along from 47, Robinson, Rookie of the Year, he's MVP. The, the experiment seemed to, uh, by 1950, uh, seems to be working. More, more Blacks are coming into the major leagues. Sam Robinson's asked uh, to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee, otherwise known as HUAC, and specifically to denounce uh, Paul Robeson. Um, 
Talk about that incident and how Robinson handled it and what was the outcome? Well, it was really significant because Robinson recognizes that um, HUAC is the House Un-American Activities Committee um, is asking him to testify because they are anticipating a particular type of response from Robinson vis-a-vis what uh, uh, Paul Robeson had said, which was essentially that um, the United States, the Soviet Union was treating people of color with far greater dignity than the United States. And Robinson is, you know, in his response, people kind of focus on there's there's one section of it where he takes a swipe at Robeson by saying that he's not going to give everything up for a, a siren song and bass. And that was kind of a low blow at, Rob, uh, at, at Robeson. But for the most part, his response is not what it's made out to be in the white press, where it's, you know, he's pitted as going against everything that uh, Robeson said. In fact, what Jack says is that African-Americans have a right to first-class citizenship like everyone else. It's actually a very militant statement if you read it, but it's, it's not the way that it's often, and certainly not at the time or even now, presented. Um, what's problematic is that the media creates this imagery of Robinson and Robeson is being diametrically opposed and Robinson being, in some sense, the good Negro and Robeson being the bad Negro. In fact, what you had were two men who, and later in life, Jack came to regret the way in which he testified under those circumstances because he felt like he had been used um, and he was not happy about that. But if you read the testimony, and we talk about this in the book, it's actually a very powerful um, affirmation of the way that Jack felt about what he was doing, what African-Americans were due as citizens of the United States. You, you know, that that moment to me, as, as you all captured it and I read about it, but that moment to me seems to be a consistent moment, uh, Professor Long, in that you've had that with, uh, in the turn of the turn of the 20th century, you were either, if you were in the, if you were in the black community, you were either Booker T. Washington or you were W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, uh, in this case, you were Robinson or you were Paul Robeson. Later on, you were Malcolm or you were Martin. So that that sort of bifurcation, that sort of false dichotomy has been a consistent narrative uh, for America, has it not, historically? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think I'm going to let Yuhuru, if you don't mind, take that up. I think he has an interesting angle on this. Yuhuru, do you mind taking that up? No, not at all. I think you're, you're right, um, Byron. I think that's exactly what you're seeing playing out there. And yet at the same time, this is the challenge in a way that we think about this because Jack Robinson, like so many of these other people, W.E.B. Du Bois and, and Booker T. Washington, for example, um, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois goes on to become um, one of the founding uh, I, uh, persons behind Pan-Africanism. So when we try to dichotomize these individuals in this way, we lose their complexity as individuals. And at various moments, depending on when you caught Jack, I mean, he's, you know, he's moving toward, he's, he's both challenging and moving toward Malcolm X. He's both challenging and um, moving toward the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. So part of the reason that a book like this is important is that it demonstrates this rich complexity of individuals and how individuals are navigating the contours of Jim Crow. And in Jack's case, trying to find ways to effectively be, um, uh, you know, um, 
advocates for civil rights in ways that will meaningfully change the landscape for African-Americans. I want to stay with you for just a minute, uh, Professor Williams. Any, do you have any uh, uh, knowledge of, of how Robeson actually felt about Robeson's remarks? Uh, Robeson understood what was happening to Jack. And, and later on, Paul Robeson's son uh, remarked that his father actually, you know, and, and, and I suspect this is because Paul Robeson actually read the statement, um, had no animosity toward Robinson for what Robinson said. He understood the optics of the um, what had taken place in that in that room. And yet at the same time, and for many years, I, I will um, say, it, it, had I not been teaching African-American history, I might have felt fallen victim, as, as many people did, to this narrative that this was one of those moments that you described earlier of, you know, two prominent Black men divided by their allegiance, one's allegiance to kind of white America, um, you know, what, what uh, Malcolm X infamously, you know, de de denounced um, Jackie Robinson as Jack Robinson is Branch Rickey's boy and Paul Robeson, who was standing up for principle and kind of, and, and that's not what happened there at all. Jack Roosevelt Robinson, that moment, stakes claim to first-class citizenship for African-Americans. I think Paul Robeson understood that and that's why he had so much grace toward Robinson and saying, I understand, um, at least according to his son, that this was a, a, a terrible position for both of them, but Robinson certainly used that platform to make a point that Robeson would have agreed with. One of, the, one of my personal takeaways from this text is that regardless of the, the, the different parts of you guys have outlined it, the different parts of the book, um, whether we're talking about Jack Robinson as a young person, as a, as a student, as an officer, as a baseball player, as a former baseball player, um, there is this through line of freedom fighter. I mean, how did you all do that? Professor Long. Yeah, I'm glad that you saw that as a through line. That's the through line that we intended, uh, no doubt about it. You can see Robinson straightening his backbone when he's throwing those rocks at the neighbor across the street, fighting for his dignity and fighting for the freedom of his family to, to live as it pleased. Uh, you see him doing the same thing on the baseball diamond when after he stops turning the other cheek, he starts arguing with umpires and he starts arguing with fellow players. And there's this wonderful photo of the book, and I dare say it's one of my favorite parts of the book, where Robinson is kicking his glove high in the air after a call that he didn't approve of. And, you know, Robinson was quite the punter. He, he punted it during a football season in college, believe it or not. And then in, in the later years, we see Robinson doing the same thing, fighting for freedom throughout the civil rights movement. So yeah, I think the freedom fighter is the through line of the book. It's the through line of the book because it's the through line of the narrative of Jack's life. You know, Professor Williams, I'm gonna go back to the, one of your earlier comments. And, you, you, and these are my words, but I took you to, to, to say that Robinson um, could was a, able to hold two sides in tension is how I'm taking your words. Uh, so it, within that in that scope, talk about his relationship uh, with Martin Luther King as well as his relationship with Malcolm X. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because I think that's one of the things that we wanted to emphasize as well is the complexity of Jack the man. So Jackie, the mythology would have us believe that everything that his critics said about him and also um, some of his his friends, you know, Wendell, 
um, uh, certainly, and 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 certainly the way that he's portrayed by, and you know, the Jackie Robinson story and some of those early um, pieces that are done, uh, paint this portrait of Robinson as kind of uh, passive and someone who was pretty much the uh, uh, toddy of the white establishment. When you dig in, what you quickly discover is that Robinson is uh, his own thinker, and he's not accepting blindly. Um, friends or foes. He's questioning and pushing back. And he does that in his relationship with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. He, um, you know, certainly supports civil rights activism. He goes down to Birmingham. Of course, King celebrates him when he's inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, describing him as a senator before the sit-ins and a freedom rider before the freedom rides. And yet when King comes out against the Vietnam War, Jack um, pushes back on King and says, you know, um, African-Americans have fought and died for this country and have a duty and responsibility to continue service. And he disagreed with, uh, you know, they disagreed about it. Doesn't change the contours of their friendship, which is interesting about Robinson. Again, it's not like he is, you know, casting people aside whom he disagrees with. He writes letters. He engages in what we today would describe as um, the cornerstones of uh, peaceable discourse that, you know, you try to change people's minds by engaging in dialogue. Same is true of Malcolm X. Malcolm and, and uh, Robinson have a bitter uh, running feud in, in the newspapers. Robins, uh, 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 Malcolm X is merciless in his characterizations of Jackie Robinson. And yet later in life, you have Jackie Robinson um, after the Olympic protest that takes place in 68, uh, saying specifically, describing Malcolm X as, as a friend the late great Malcolm X, he describes him as, and saying that you know he he understood better what Malcolm was saying in the sense that maybe sometimes you have to take extreme positions in order for people to understand just how bad or dire situations are. We also see that with him and the Black Panthers. He did not agree with the tactics that the Black Panther Party took. And yet when the Panthers are under assault by law enforcement, he's the first person to come to their defense and to say, you know, this is this is not um this is not democratic. This is not fair. They have a right to self-defense. They have a right to make these arguments unencumbered by, um, you know, the the type of uh, federal surveillance and uh, other challenges that were um, other tactics that were used by the government to try to, to to disrupt them. So you see that in Robinson's person, and again, I think that's why he's such a a powerful symbol for this moment because he speaks to an individual who was both critical of, and yet at the same time held a great respect and belief in the power of and the possibility for American democracy. If you could only live up to those principles, I imagine Robbins would say, you know, in his own way, that America could be great and he was going to fight for that greatness that he perceived it could become, but only if it dealt with this kind of ugly, just the racism, the economic inequality, Today, as we look at, for example, the pushback against the phantom menace in public schools of critical race theory, um, that's not a pushback against that theory. It's a pushback against the teaching of substantive American history with all of its warts. Jack was an individual who was always willing to deal with the warts, to call out the warts. This is wrong politically, economically, socially. And he didn't just call it out. He's not just a spokesman, but he takes actions to redress it. So after baseball, you see him. Um, taking on a position in chock full of nuts as a vice president for human resources so he can help create more jobs for African-Americans, people of color in New York. 
You see him as a, a co-founder of Freedom National Bank because he wants to ensure low interest loans for housing and for businesses for African-Americans. Uh, you see this toward the close of his life where he and his wife, Rachel, are actually putting together a construction co company to build homes. So it's not that he just talked, it, he didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. You know, we, we've um, talked very little about baseball for, for good reason, I would say. Uh, but Professor Long, uh, according to my calculations, which, which are suspect, 20,000 men have played the major leagues, more than 20,000. Roughly 170 have a career batting average over 300. I would offer that none, with the exception of one, bore anything remotely close to the internal and external pressures of Robinson, who was a, a career 311 hitter. Your thoughts on that, sir? I agree. Uh, so it's one thing to compile the, these Hall of Fame statistics it's another thing to compile them, earn them uh, under intense pressure. So Robinson batted not only 311, but he batted 311 when there were people in the stands who were threatening his very life. Uh, you know, he was winning the Most Valuable Player Award uh, when there were people in the stands who were yelling everything imaginable at him and when there were threats against his family. So yeah, it's one thing to compile these Hall of Fame statistics in and of itself. Compiling those Hall of Fame statistics is absolutely amazing. But you throw in the pressure and you have a Hall of Fame within the Hall of Fame, and that's where Jack Robinson belongs. Professor Williams, a year after Robinson's death, it becomes clear that Hank Aaron is on the path to break Babe Ruth's home run record in earnest. And as we now know, Aaron was the recipient of hate mail, including death threats. How much, in your view, did, did Robinson's legacy support Aaron through which I got to imagine was the most difficult time? I think, in fact, I'm going to let Michael speak to this. We actually just uh, were working on an editorial on this, um, on the uh, anniversary of, of Jack's passing. Michael, do you want to pick that up? Sure. Uh, so. Jack Robinson died on October 24th, 1972. His funeral was three days later. And Sam Lacey was a reporter for the Afro-American, and he attended the funeral. And he noticed that there weren't a whole lot of younger Black players. One of the players who was there was Henry Aaron. He made it a point to get to the funeral because he often both taught about, I'm sorry, he often talked about how Robinson had inspired him, how he had cleared the path for him, and he just felt this incredible debt toward Jack Robinson. And so he made it a point to go to the funeral, and he said later that when Jackie died, he really, he, Henry Aaron, really felt that it was up to him to carry on Jack's legacy. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? In this case, it was the legacy of pursuing excellence on the diamond. And when Henry Aaron is pursuing uh, Babe Ruth's record, he turns to Robinson, he says, more than anybody else. He thought of Jackie Robinson more than anybody else. And he said, if Jack could have gone through all that, 
all that pain, all that suffering. The least I can do is to do the same when I'm pursuing Babe Ruth's record. So when Aaron is getting all of these death threats and, and they're innumerable, it seems, uh, he's drawing from the strength of Jack Roosevelt Robinson. And when he smashes that, uh, what, number 715, uh, he's rounding the basis the bases, and he's thinking of his parents as he's doing that. He's thinking of the people who introduced him to Jack Robinson, and later he speaks about his victory in light of Robinson as well. Robinson provided the fuel to Hank Aaron, no doubt about it. Professor Williams, um, actually I want to have both of you, so I'm going to ask them to pose this to Professor Williams, but certainly Professor Long, I'd like to have you chime on this as well. With individuals that influence the culture, there seems to be a tendency to, cre to create two versions, the cheap version and the authentic one. The cheap version is the one that rocks our memories to sleep. It's, one dimension, it's a one-dimensional avatar that borders on perfection. And then there's the authentic version that's complex, where their greatness and flaw intertwine. So there's a cheap Lincoln, there's a cheap Jefferson, there's a cheap King that go along with the authentic version. 50 years after his death, is there not that tension with Robinson um, that you had to confront in your text? I, I think we did. I think we, we confronted that tension. And the other part of that tension is something that is certainly um, germane to American history. You know, William Dean Howells, the famous uh, author, once told Edith Wharton when she was embarking on her literary career at the turn of the century, that if she wanted to be a successful writer, she had to understand that at the end of the day, what the American public always wants is a tragedy with a happy ending. And we are willing to sacrifice the facts in order to create narratives that turn our history into a simple morality play that's always a progress narrative from here to there, from slavery to freedom, um, from civil rights to black liberation, so on and so forth. And that means that we try to force um, our heroes into those molds. Certainly that's the case with Robinson. And so when you talk about a cheap version and an authentic version, the cheap version is always cast in those simple, that simple morality play. You know, Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, not the individual that waffled to a certain extent on emancipation um, for whatever excuses that you want to make for him because he was trying to maintain the union and was very clear about that being one of his primary directives. Um, Martin Luther King, wonderful on civil rights, not so great on gender equality. Um, when we don't deal with individuals and in all their complexity, I think we do a disservice not only to our history and understanding the whole idea of the process of the perfecting of American democracy, but we do a disservice to young people who tend to see these iconic figures exactly as how you, how you describe them, uh, Byron, as cookie cutter um, uh, avatars who then become, in some sense, uh, so far removed from them that they can't in any way see themselves as, as acting in the same way as everyday champions for freedom and equality. We turn Jackie Robinson, Rosa Parks, and Martin Luther King into the Avengers. And so therefore, young people think that somehow they have superpowers, and that's how they were able to accomplish the things that they were able to accomplish. In fact, it's that's not true. Jack, Rosa, and Martin were just ordinary human beings who recognized that they had a duty and a responsibility as caretakers and also a duty and a responsibility as Black people to do everything in their power to ensure equality for all people. 
And that's something that any young person can can um, really embrace and do um, even today. Professor Long, anything you'd like to add to that? There's not much to add to that. I'll tell you that, but it, you know, the, the, the practice of holding these different poles in tension is just who we are, right? And so sometimes I'm sweet, sometimes I'm sour, sometimes I'm nice, sometimes I'm nasty. And the list just goes on and on. And so the Robinson we depict in Call Him Jack is really the person each of us knows deep down that we don't like to admit lives there. Uh, Professor Long, I'm gonna stay with you. I'd like to, ha I'd like to have both of you uh, answer this if you would. I, I remember because I've been a baseball fan my entire life. So I remember watching on television the 72 World Series game two when Robinson threw out the first pitch. And it's it's still difficult to believe looking at him that he was 50, just 53 years old. How much, in your view, did baseball contribute to the early death of Jack Roosevelt Robinson? Uh, that is an excellent question. So clearly he died of a massive heart attack and complications of diabetes. There's no doubt about that. So in 72, when he throws out that ceremonial pitch at the second game of the World Series, he's virtually blind from diabetes in one eye, and there'd been talk about amputating his legs, and he's just in really awful shape. Uh, there has been a recent study, Byron, and I don't have it at my fingertips, by these medical doctors who make the case that Robinson's early death was caused in part by all the racism that he had suffered throughout his life. And I guess there are quite a few studies that indicate the effects of racism on early deaths. Uh, if that's the case, and, and it clearly seems to be the case, then racism the intense racism, the public racism that Robinson suffered in public had to have been a major contributing factor to his early death. Professor Williams? I couldn't agree more. In fact, um, when we were working on this project, I remember one night Michael and I were, you know, kind of talking about that, um, that World Series and, and watching the footage of it again. And you can see like 50, 52 years old, um, Robinson is hobbled by age is how he's described, but he's 52 years old. Um, but I think that the way that Michael has described it in terms of the, the um, impact of racism is important because we, we often talk about, or at least social scientists now talk about epigenetic harm. The idea that uh, events that happen through the course of our lives, or sometimes that happen to whole communities leave scars and those wounds are significant. Um, the red summer of 1919 left scars on the people whom it touched. And we don't know how that, it, in, in how it expresses itself, not only in terms of their movements and their patterns, but in terms of their genes. Um, in the case of Robinson, we think about him bearing in some sense, the weight of all of that as a singular individual integrating baseball in 1947. It had to play a role in some significant way on his health. There's no way, today we know so much about the impact of, of, you know, psychiatric care and, and the impact that that level of stress can have on a human body. And uh, Michael has described it as a Herculean effort in terms of the integration of baseball. I think it would have been Herculean for him to have survived any longer under the burdens of what he had suffered by virtue of having taken on 
that great responsibility that moment. Not to mention the physical demands of playing the game in that moment, where today we think about athletes having access to the highest level of healthcare, um, but that's as a result of so much sports medicine from that, you know, Jack didn't have that early in, in his career. Uh, we talked about, you know, several injuries that he suffered from, but at the end of the day, I think it was less the game of baseball and the physical demands on his body and more the demands on his spirit um, created by having to deal with the burdens of, you know, carrying the weight of integration on his shoulders, carrying the physical um, toll of, of being assaulted and worrying, you know, verbally assaulted and, and facing death threats and then worrying about his family and worrying about letting down um, Branch Rickey, letting down Black America. Uh, I don't, I can't imagine, you know, we often joke about presidents when they leave the White House, how they have gray hair. And you can see that premature gray in Robinson as well. The book, Call Him Jack, the story of Jackie Robinson, Black Freedom Fire. Our guests for the hour have been Professors Johuru Williams and Michael Long. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much. It's been an honor to be in conversation with you on The Public Morality. Thank you very much. Thank you, Byron. Thanks for having us. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Paul McRally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.